Close Encounters of the First Kind, Sighting of a UFO. Close Encounters of the Second Kind, Physical Evidence. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Contact. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 68, Marvel Comics Super Special, Number 3, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Hello, time travelers. It's me again, Ben. Ben Avery, comic book fan, comic book collector, kind of. I mean, my collection's not worth much, really. Comic book writer, uh, comic book editor. I mean, I, I've, I've done the comic book thing. Uh, it's safe to say in, in plenty of different ways. And I'm here to look at the next book in the coverage of the Marvel's licensed sci-fi fantasy uh, comic books that they published between 1977 and 1986, going month by month. And, well, this comic book was published in the month that we're covering right now, and so here I am talking about it. <laughs> yeah, how's that for an introduction? So fair warning for this segment of the coverage of June 1978. Uh, first of all, this magazine that I'm covering, Marvel Super Special number three, Close Encounters of the Third Kind adaptation. It doesn't have a cover date. Um, so there's that. <laughs> and beyond that, uh, I'm covering it though because it was released to comic book shelves or to magazine shelves, I guess. This is a magazine-sized book uh, on March 14th of 1978. So more of a fair warning, you are about to hear reminiscence. You are about to hear nostalgia, and you are about to hear reflections on a movie that I have seen many, many, many times. Although this was, for this recording, the first time I'd ever read this magazine. I forced myself when I purchased this magazine not to open it, not to read it, because I wanted this to be my first experience with it. I did flip through once. Uh, I also looked to see who the uh, credits uh, were and, and who was who, who had done this, this book. Actually, let's go ahead and go there right now because the credits list here is impressive. Now, this is 1978, and so it's edited and adapted by Archie Goodwin, who, yeah, he's just all over the place right now. Illustrated by Walt Simonson and Klaus Janssen. Yes. I mean, we've got legends working on this book here. Colored by Mary Severin. Uh, lettered by Gaspar Saladino. Okay, we're out of the legend place because I don't I don't know that name. But um, yeah, uh, the cover has a painting by Bob Larkin. And yeah, this book. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and go there right now. I'm going to take myself to this place 
right now, this place of nostalgia, this place of excitement, and this place of I, – I, I'm not going to be able to hide it. I, I might as well just start right now raving about this book. This adaptation is one of the best film to comic adaptations that I have read, period, one of the best. It is not the best. I'm not quite sure exactly what I would give the label of the best to. I know it's not this book, okay? Uh, some of the best are uh, the Alien adaptation by actually by Archie Goodwin and uh, Walt Simonson. So there's that. Uh, and also Outland, uh, which uh, Jim Steranko did. Uh, the movie itself isn't bad, but the the adaptation is wonderful. And I, uh, I recommend it if you can get your hands on that. Uh, the, the alien one, uh, also just brilliant, brilliant adaptation. But here you have two people who really, really know their craft, Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson. And now one interesting thing though, uh, I talk about characters being on model and looking like the people that they are, you know, that they're trying to draw from the, the live action presentation of the story. Well, in this case, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, contractually, they could not look like the characters. I don't know how common that is. And so, you know, looking at the Star Wars comics, I, I, they were really trying hard, especially in that adaptation, to make Luke, Leia, Han, especially in the early issues, I should say, of that adaptation, uh, look like the actors that portrayed those characters. And you see similar things in other adaptations where you can tell that they're trying. Uh, Star Trek, you know, they're, you can tell they're trying. They don't always do well. And usually I would attribute that to um, paying for a less talented artist who can't figure out how to um, do a caricature of the character so it fits the medium and still looks like the character they're trying to draw. So, you know... They're able to stick with a style that looks like their style for the comic book without doing life drawing, so to speak. Well, for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, none of these characters look like the people from the movies. Uh, it, it just they, they just don't. And the, the, the main character, who is played by, by Richard Dreyfuss, um, he... Richard Dreyfuss has a manic energy, but he also has this, you know, he, he's not big. You know, in in the comic though, he he has some some beef to him. He beef. I mean, it's fat. It, it's not muscle. So I don't know if, if beef is quite the right word. But um, he's a chubby, you know, working class guy who you know is is living a middle class life and fits the character. I mean, it fits the character well. If you were you know taking it from a novel. And doing this adaptation, and then taking the novel and doing the uh, the movie with the you know with the actor who's going to fit that. By the way, the novel *Close Encounters of the Third Kind* is also a, a pretty good novel. I really liked it. And anyway, uh, the pacing is well done. Uh, now they have plenty of room. There are sixty four pages to tell this story. And in the back, Archie Goodwin, uh, similar to the note that he had in the adaptation of The Empire Strikes Back, he has a note here about adapting from one uh, medium to another medium. And so with this, they actually did, you know, drop scenes. 
and they let other scenes, you know, go ahead and fill the whole page, you know, even though it's a minor thing. But, you know, the the, the movie opens up with a couple different UFO um, experiences, a couple different UFO um, appearances. And in the movie, it's going from place to place to place is a little jarring. It's actually less jarring here because it happens at the page turn. And you have the one thing happen and the other thing happen and and then you're just kind of rolling along with it. Now, in a, in a nutshell, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm, I'm not going to um, get too much into the details of the plot because it is a pretty simple plot. Aliens are visiting our world. UFOs have come to our world and they have made contact with people and certain people, the right people who they have made contact with as far as visual contact, that close encounter of the the second kind, they get visions of uh, a place and they want to go to this place. And so for our main character, Roy Neary, this means that he's obsessed with uh, making sculptures of Devil's Tower in in Wyoming. Meanwhile, there's a, a woman who's had a similar experience, uh, actually had the the encounter experience uh, with Roy. Her name's Jill. And in her case, uh, aliens have actually abducted her son. And so she is also obsessed with the sighting. She's obsessed with uh, Devil's Tower. And it turns out there's lots of people who have the same uh, kind of homing pigeon instinct to go to Devil's Tower, but the military aren't letting them, and so it becomes this kind of thing where Roy has <laughs> he's, he's lost his life. His wife has left him. His kids have left him. He is going to Devil's Tower because he is going to get to the bottom of this. Jill ends up going along with him. There's a military cover-up. There's um, other sightings and other people who have made it that far. And the, the military cover-up is this kind of nerve gas cover story that the area has been affected by nerve gas and animals are dying and there's actually dead animals on the road. And, uh, you know, in the movie, they have a, a canary with them and they're going through the area and the military stop them and the canary is fine. And the military guys are all wearing their, their gas masks and they pull out uh, the cage with the canary and the canary's dead. Well, is it dead because of nerve gas or is it dead because the military people killed it. There's also a third character who's a scientist. And I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of characters, but the, the third primary focus character is this scientist. So we can see all of the backside of things as they are discovering what these uh, sightings mean, what there's this five notes, uh, a message. Um, what does that mean? There's also these coordinates of a message that are, are beamed to to them. And what does that mean? And and so they're figuring out how this all fits together and where the aliens are coming, of course, through science and through, you know, faith, basically obsessive faith in this thing that's bigger than us. They're both led to this, the both groups of people, the civilians and the scientists and the military are all led to the same place, the Devil's Tower. And that's where you have this wonderful, wonderfully orchestrated and scored um, scene, but then also with some pretty amazing special effects of a UFO, unlike any any UFO uh, scene on, on film. It's it's huge. It's brilliant. It's glorious. And, and that's a, a part of this 
movie is that there's this horror element toward the beginning, but then you get toward the end and it's kind of this almost religious experience. And we'll get into why I like the movie so much. I'm sure as I continue talking about this, but uh, with the, the art, it's great. It's Walt Simonson. And there's some interesting uh, devices for, for the lights and everything. And, and how do you make the, these brilliant lights that the lights are so brilliant that they shield the actual shape of the, the UFOs as they're flying around and whizzing around. Um, it, it does lose something. It's not a perfect adaptation. There are some loss of story elements or cute moments like with the, a cute small little UFO that kind of stops and, and you know, those elements are lost, but they keep all the character elements, the primary character elements. Now they have 64 pages. Also they use caption boxes and the art does not and cannot stand alone in telling the story. Now, and I won't, won't go so far as to say that the, the the comic is as good as the movie. I feel like the movie itself is one of the best science fiction movies out there. You know, definitely a top 100 kind of thing. I, I really like the movie. Um, my nostalgia for the movie largely comes from seeing this, you know, as a, you know, 1993 or 94 as a college student. I hadn't seen it before. And, you know, E.T. I had seen you know, half a dozen, maybe a dozen times by that point. Uh, I knew about Close Encounters of the Third Kind and had seen scenes from Close Encounters of the Third Kind in those, you know, specials that used to be on TV where they're talking about special effects. And, you know, Mark Hamill and R2-D2 are basically promoting Empire Strikes Back, but they're talking about all these old movies and aliens and how do they make those alien effects work and that kind of thing. One day I went into a video store, a blockbuster video near my home, I was, I think, home for Christmas, and in the video store, I looked up at the screen, and it, they were playing Close Encounters of the Third Kind on the TV monitors, and I asked what the movie was. They told me. I said, yeah, I'd like to see that. Could I rent that? And they went, rewound it, took it out of the machine, gave it to me, and let me rent it, and I really, really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed that movie, and I think part of it is the idea of you know, for me as a college student trying to find my place in this world and you have this you know, middle-aged man, but I'm, um, I'm looking at him and him discovering that the world is a much, much bigger place, far bigger than he could possibly imagine. And just going out and, and throwing himself into the search for you know, what it all means and leaving everything behind to find the explanation and to explore this brave, new, scary but beautiful world. Now, it wasn't until years, years later that I was talking about this with some friends and like, yeah, that's great and all, but you realize he left behind his family, his children, his wife. And of course, his wife left him first, but that doesn't mean that he didn't leave behind, you know, all of his parental responsibilities. So there, there is some problems with the you know there is no such thing as a perfect metaphor right i mean so i'm i myself am finding myself or did find myself drawn to the positive side of what he was doing uh as far as a an obsessed nearly insane man uh can be a positive role model <laughs> but yeah 
so the other thing that was kind of funny is I watched it again not long after that when I had a friend come and visit. And we watched it together. And then we were downstairs in my basement where my room was. And it gets pitch black down there. And my brother came down in the morning to wake us up. He had been sick. Uh, so he was kind of walking funny and he was looking a little gaunt and he turned the lights on in the stairway. And so all of a sudden my buddy looks up and sees this silhouette, this strangely elongated silhouette shadow coming down toward us in the stairs and it freaked him out. It was one of my favorite memories of, you know, just hanging out with that guy. And I have a lot of favorite memories with him he's a good friend but it was really really funny but again it's, it's one of those nostalgia things this, this movie has a kind of weird removed nostalgia for me because i didn't see it until you know the 90s but it's about the 70s and takes place in the 70s and is filmed in the 70s and there's just something about watching the movie that takes me to a place that i kind of halfway experienced as a child but didn't quite really and then there's also the connection to et which et if you want to hit all of my nostalgia buttons, that is the movie. I mean, that came out this summer, the perfect summer for me. And somehow, some way, this didn't even happen with Star Wars. I saw E.T. in the, in the theaters twice in the same summer. And then we saw it again a couple years later when it was re-released. So anyway, this movie was directed by Steven Spielberg. And it's also one of the first movies that I ever knew of that had a special edition where they added scenes in and re-released it a few years later. And now there's the director's cut, which, you know, everything has a director's cut. But the director's cut takes the original and the special edition, kind of merges them together. And, of course, I have the uh, the special 30th anniversary edition <laughs> that they did. And, I mean, I bought that thing as soon as it came out. As soon as it came out, it was in my grubby little hands. And it comes with a poster, it has all of these uh, timelines of the movie explaining what scenes are only in the original edition and then what scenes are adjusted for the special edition and then what scenes are removed and added back in for the director's cut as a special booklet with it. It has three discs because it's DVD. I didn't get the Blu-ray. I'm not even sure in 2008 if they had a Blu-ray, but I'm sure there's a Blu-ray edition of this out there somewhere now. But anyway... Uh, the bottom line is this is a movie I really, really enjoy. And reading this comic was something that I really, really enjoyed as well. Now, sometimes a comic has uh, basically it's the only place you can find deleted scenes, the comic or the novelization, because they use a earlier draft of the script. That's not the case for this one, really. Um, it was when it first came out because there were a couple scenes that they used an, a, the draft from the script specifically because it added something to the character and allowed them to present something with the character. But then in the special edition that was reinserted. And so, you know, the impulse that they had to use that scene, even though it wasn't going to be in the movie, it turns out Spielberg did the same kind of thing. And Archie Goodwin, he details a couple of those kind of things in here. One of the things he also mentions is, uh, you know, I was talking about how they were traveling and they had the canary and the canary was put to sleep or killed by gas. In here, they have a scene where they're driving along and they're discussing, well, did the military, they're, they're bluffing. And then they see these dead animals on the side of the road and it turns out, well, maybe they're not bluffing. 
And so what they end up doing in the movie is they start, you know, scrambling to get their gas masks and put their gas masks on and they're having a hard time doing it. But in the book, the comic here, it's done in two panels where they just kind of the car goes past the dead animals. Uh, uh, Jill and Roy look at each other in one panel and the next panel they're wearing gas masks and it works brilliantly because they are telling the story using this medium and not trying to emulate another medium. And and it works. This is one that I would say is one to look at as an example, to study and and see how they did it. Um, there's parts of it that are more dynamic than they were in the movie because the, the panels of the comic are finding that moment of drama. And also it's Walt Simonson, and he's drawing his... His character of of Jill, you know, I'll, I'll just put it out there. She's she's curvier than than Melinda Dillon, the actress who played uh, uh, Jill in the in the movie. She's she's got comic book curves, and and then when they're you know op- opening doors and or slamming doors or jumping out of uh, you know the helicopter, it's it's done dynamically, and it's it's. So it's different. And the other big difference is the music. First of all, no comic has the same music because there is no music. But this is an interesting one, and I wasn't sure how they would tackle it. And basically, they do it through captioning. But this is a story that just uses music as a an important uh plot point it's it's a plot point in in that they are being communicated with these tones but then they use those tones to communicate back and the music itself then also um when you wish upon a star and i was i guess it was a special edition add-in it wasn't as obvious in the earlier uh, the, the original edition but that is a part of the the musical score but then you also have these these five notes that I'm I'm going to play for you right now. I'm sure you have heard this music before. If you are a fan of science fiction, you have probably seen something using this or maybe you've heard a parody of it. But I can't think of any movie other than a musical where music has had such an important part in the actual story itself. And that's something that, yeah, as wonderful as this comic is, they just cannot, cannot possibly overcome the lack of an audio soundtrack. Now, apparently it's not just the soundtrack. Now, I have only experienced this on VHS on my small TV in my family's house. And now on DVD, but so I've experienced it with that tiny, you know, the tiny little stereo speakers that are on the TV that weren't bad, but they weren't anything special and then experienced it on a TV with a decent sound system. But apparently the Dolby stereo or whatever it is they use was very, very, I don't know about ahead of its time, but it definitely used the the technology to the, the full extent that it could be used when it played in theaters. So do I recommend Close Encounters of the Third Kind as a comic that you should track down and read? I don't know if I would recommend it as something you should track down, but if it's something that you come across, read it. It's really, really good. 
and just a very, very strong adaptation. Uh, you know, I look at Jack Kirby's 2001 adaptation. That's something I'll pull out because it's so crazy compared to the original. And with Close Encounters of the Third Kind, this one, I'll probably read it again. But I almost think this is something that could be used as a textbook example of how to adapt a movie to a comic. It's just really, really well done the way that they pick and choose. They don't feel like they have to shoehorn every single scene into it, which is something I might add I am guilty of when I do my adaptations. When I did The Hedge Knight and The Hedge Knight 2 and The Hedge Knight 3, my job was to you know let the story be there. I put in every scene. Um, I didn't add much. I just tried to make sure that it was George Martin's work and not mine that was going to the page. And the same with some of the other adaptations that I've worked on. But the one that I couldn't do that with was, I think it was a 28-page story based on a man's biography that was two volumes. And each volume was like 150 pages. So that was picking and choosing and and trying to find, you know, like with this. And it's it's not easy to do, but this here is a great example of how it works. They're finding those emotional moments, those emotional uh, points where you can just grab the reader with incredible visuals or emotional visuals. And they do both here. The reveal of the UFO when it comes to Devil's Tower, it's a wonderful, colorful two-page splash. And that's something else I want to say about the colors is, you know, with all of the materials that I've seen for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, there's a lot of reds and a lot of blues in the logo and in the poster and in the cover of this book itself. Uh, Mary Severin, especially when dealing with the lights and the alien ships themselves really uses a palette that goes along with that. So purples, light purples, uh, light pinks, and then blues. And it's just, it's just a really, really well done comic. I would say if you have not seen the movie, this comic would stand alone as a very strong read. I think that anyone picks it up who is into this kind of thing. You have to be into this kind of thing. But if you do like, you know, science fiction stories and that the deal with, you know, UFOs, abductions, the 70s, whatever, uh, you'd enjoy this. Even if you haven't seen the movie, if you have seen the movie, I think if you've seen the movie and like the movie, I think you would like this adaptation. It, it, it works well and, and it's a nice supplement to the movie itself. So there you have it. Close Encounters. Of the third kind, this segment comes to a close. Next segment, I will be reading John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number 13. I'm excited to get back into that. Um, we left him off in a pretty tight spot. And, you know, I, I don't care how he gets out of the tight spot. I just want him to be in a decent story <laughs> once he gets out of that tight spot. So I know he's going to get out of the tight spot. Anyway. Uh, that, that brings this segment to a close. It's time to move on to some John Carter, Warlord of Mars. So until next time, I say to you, 
as you step aboard that spaceship that's going to take you into the great unknown, the great, big, wonderful, beautiful universe that is bigger than your puny mind can conceive when thinking of how big our world is. As you step onto that ship, wherever you may be and wherever it may take you, Godspeed. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, Tars Tarkas battles his best friend to the death. March of the Dead, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number 13. 